Exodus 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. After hearing the disastrous news that God would not go any further with these stiff-necked people, Israel, promising them an angel to go with them, but saying, my presence is not going with you. After that, we witnessed more of Moses' mediatorial work. Appealing to the Lord on the basis of his word. We looked at some of that last week. On the basis of God's nature, on the basis of God's character. Back in verse 12, Moses said, You say, Lord, you have said that you know me by name. On behalf of the people, Lord, consider too, this nation is your people. Now we see yet again this morning more of Moses' work of mediation. A very specific request that we'll look at because our attention is drawn to one of the most stunning petitions in all of the Old Testament. It's verse 18. Please show me your glory. Now remember, Israel's sin of the golden calf occurred at the foot of Mount Sinai before the tabernacle was erected. Okay, that is before there's any official means of atonement. The altar of sacrifice was not yet erected. Moses was up there receiving the instructions for these things. The priesthood was not yet inaugurated. 
So up to, all, up to this point, all of these provisions are only intended. They're planned for by God. And having not established them, he says, Moses, lead these people up into the promised land. Like I said, I'll bring an angel to go before you to cast out your enemies, but I'm not going. That is to say, there's no tabernacle. Therefore, there's no means of atonement. Thus, the reason Moses stepped up and said back in chapter 32, verse 30, perhaps, just perhaps, people, I can go before the Lord and make atonement for your sin. And then he does. He goes and offers himself as a means of atonement, that is, as a means of satisfaction for God's anger against these stiff-necked people, saying, Lord, if you just blot me out of your book of life, book of the living. You see, for Israel, the official means of atoning for sin is still future as per the tabernacle. Moses offers himself as a means of atonement. God did not accept it. We looked at this a few weeks ago, and obviously it is only Christ who is yet to come who is able to atone for the sins of people like Israel and you and me. For he is the true tabernacle of God. So for the church, today, the final, complete, once and for all atonement for sin has happened. Everything that we read about in Exodus foreshadows that reality. Jesus has come. So God's burning anger against Israel that we've been reading about for weeks is not something that continually simmers against the church. Not because the church is faultless. Not because the church is sinless. Not because God is now all of a sudden soft on sin. But because God's anger has been completely spent on Christ. The true substitutionary sacrifice who alone makes proper atonement. So it's not that God's nature has changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But rather, according to God's design, his mediator, the one greater than Moses, has come to be sin, having never sinned for us. That in him, the scripture says, we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So the gospel shows us that God's ultimate punishment for sin was carried out by the Son. That's what all this foreshadows that we've been studying for quite some time. Now, that, of course, is not to at all minimize the calamity of the golden calf. That was a great sin. Moses went up and he said, you've sinned a great sin. Not all sin is just sin in the eyes of God. We've learned that. However, we are to see the golden calf incident in light of an empty tomb. Victory over sin and death for, here it is, the namesake of Almighty God. And again, 1 John 2.12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Take note of that fact. This is very important. Our forgiveness in God's name 
are inseparably woven together. Our forgiveness in God's name are inseparably woven together. That, beloved, is the overarching point of our passage this morning. That fact. So we don't want to miss it. So let's consider the text before us. And we're considering this dramatic request. Please show me your glory. Here's Moses petitioning Almighty God. We've seen a number of occasions upon which he has done this. So we have to ask, what exactly is he asking? Why is he asking this? And why is he asking this here at this particular juncture? Okay, now Exodus, if you've been paying attention, has already spoken much about the glory of God. Amen? We've read much about the glory of God. I mean, the Bible as a whole speaks much about beholding the glory of God. Now, Moses certainly saw something of the glory of God at the burning bush. Israel saw it in the pillar of cloud in chapter 14 that separated them from their pursuing enemies, the Egyptians. And then in chapter 16, as the people grumbled, what did God say? I'm going to show my glory by way of provision of manna from heaven. So we read that there. Then at Sinai, they all witnessed from the foot of the mountain what was going up atop the mountain, fire, smoke, thundering, lightning, a trumpet blast, and they all trembled. And then Moses himself, we read, went into the cloud. He went into the cloud, he went into the fire, into the glory of God. I mean, that's the description we get. He goes up to receive those instructions for the tabernacle. And then last time in verses 7 through 11, in the tent of meeting that was outside the camp, the proto-tabernacle, that wasn't the tabernacle, it was outside the camp, Moses would go in there and speak to God, we read, face to face. So Moses has indeed seen many manifestations of the glory of God. He knew what the glory of God was like. Okay, so the tension of Exodus is, can a sinful man, Moses, see God's glory and live? The answer is yes and no. Yes and no. We just read it. We've been reading about the glory of God. So Moses, who spoke to God face to face, he, he, he communed with God. But that cannot mean he was seeing God face to face physically. That would be inconsistent with the rest of the chapter. Okay? So face to face then, God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a man, is a description of the communion they had that is not a physical description. Communion. So even Moses, the chief mediator of God's old covenant people, cannot see the unmediated glory of God as it would be too much and consume him as it would any other person. This kind of manifestation of it. So the Lord affords him these precautionary measures, measures of protection to the particular, this particular revealing of God's glory. So his glory in this sense is more than any mere mortal can bear. So God obviously here in this text 
God obviously, the sovereign omnipotent one, the omniscient, omniscient, all-knowing, he obviously knows the difference in what Moses is asking here. Please show me your glory compared to what he's already experienced. Because he establishes these particular parameters he hasn't set before. Okay, so why? Why this request now? First, what this is not, okay? This is not Moses requesting a personal, mystical experience for the sake of his own soul, okay? This is not Moses seeking a deeper, personal experience of God. This is not about that. I'm sorry if that smothers the wick, of an anticipated fiery experience with God. But if we're going to be true to the text, we have to remember this passage that we're in right here is rooted in Moses' work of mediation. That's, That's the context in which we're fixed, okay? So God just agreed last week. We looked at this. God just agreed to Moses' request for him to be with his people. That is, for God to go with his people. That's what we looked at last Lord's Day. Look at verse 17, chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And then Moses said, Please show me your glory. So having agreed to go with them, Moses now wants two things. Number one, he wants confirmation. And number two, he wants to see God's disposition. Okay, number one, he wants verification, and he wants to know what God's temperament will be when he goes with the people. Because remember, God did say back in verse 5, chapter 33, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. (laughs) So confirmation of God's disposition will be confirmed when Moses sees the glory of God or the manifestation of it like this. Now you think about this in finite human terms. If If you've ever had a disagreement with someone and you want to reconcile with that person, there's been a conflict, you want to resolve it, It's not the wisest thing to try to fix it over email. Right? Because behind email, behind mere words, you can can hide a frown, a scowl, or tears. You want face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact with the individual you're trying to reconcile with. You want to see their countenance. You want to see their disposition. You want to know, are they still upset with me or are we really okay? Right? Don't try to reconcile over email. I've tried it. It doesn't work. People lie. We all lie. Eye to eye, face to face. So Moses wants to see God's disposition. He he wants his appearance to confirm his promise to go. That's the purpose of theophanies in the Bible. Theophanies, appearances or visitations of God. Theophanies in Scripture served to confirm God's promises. If you remember um, when Jacob 
was running from his brother Esau in fear for his own life. God promised in Genesis 28, he promised Jacob this, I am the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the God of Abraham and Isaac. The land on which you lie, Jacob, I will give to you and your offspring. Okay, now, Jacob goes on and he sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And he awakes and he says this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Okay? And then in Genesis 32, Jacob, when he deceived his father Isaac many years before, when his father Isaac said, Who are you, son, so I can give you my blessing? Is this Esau? He says, This is Esau. I am Esau, my father. And he was Jacob, and he's a liar. He wrestles with God, and God asks him, What is your name? And he breaks. I am Jacob. I am Jacob. God said this, No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel. And then Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, which means the face of God. He said, I have seen God face to face and have survived. (laughs) I've survived. Back in chapter 3, again, the burning bush, chapter 3 of Exodus. Moses hears God's command. He hears God's promises. He says, Lord, but who am I and who shall I say sent me when the people say, who sent you? Who shall I say? He said, I am that I am. He gives him his name, his covenant name. And then he said, this will be a sign to you. You'll lead the people back to this mountain and here at this mountain, you will worship me. That's the sign. That's the confirmation. So theophanies confirm God's promises, and here, Moses wants confirmation. We read in verses 19 to 23, God says how he will confirm those promises. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. The Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Anthropomorphic terms, God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have a hand. God's spirit, his glory His unmediated glory will consume anybody. So God provides protection for this manifestation of his glory to confirm his promise to Moses that he will indeed go with the people. Okay, you with me? And then in chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, God repeats the instructions about how Moses is to approach him. It's emphasized, if you notice in verse 4, that Moses rose up and went up to Mount Sinai. In what way? Just as the Lord commanded him. Just as the Lord commanded. He cut out new tablets, right? The first set, when Moses saw the sin of the people, he threw them down and they broke. They broke God's law. God's law, the tablets have been broken. Be ready by morning. You'll come up, I'll come down. You'll ascend, I'll descend to the top of the mountain. Keep everyone away, by the way. Every man, every beast, keep them away. 
So what God did was descend in a cloud. We've already seen that. He's descended in a cloud. We, we've witnessed that. He stood. He passed by before him. God afforded protection for Moses from the greatness of his glory. So there's Moses being protected by God. From who? From God. <laughs> That's what the cross is. Protection from his judgment. Judgment of God. Protected by God through his son. So notice here, there's no physical description given to us. God's physical appearance is not highlighted, beloved. Okay? It's not highlighted. The emphasis is not on what Moses sees. The emphasis is on what what? What what? What what? What he hears. (laughs) What he hears. The proclamation made. God's name and God's word. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, now before we move on to the, in this study, I, I want to look at the back end of verse 7 because it's off, oftentimes misunderstood by God's people. And that is, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a repeat of the second commandment which Israel broke. You shall not make unto me any graven image of anything in heaven above or earth below or sea beneath the earth. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the children upon the fathers for generation of those who hate me. Third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So he's not referring to some generational curse. If you're a Christian, I'm not receiving God's blessing because God must have put a curse on grandpa and and grandmammy. You know, they were atheists. He's cursed us. All he's saying is that sin has consequences. Okay, now remember, Israel will spend 40 years in the wilderness and their children will suffer the consequences. Yes, the next generation will enter into the promised land, but they're going to be in the wilderness for a good part of that 40 years, consequence of their parents' sin. Later generations of God's people will be born in Babylon due to the sins of The parents. It's just a consequence, not for us. Divorce. We all hate divorce. Some of us are divorced. Some people are in the church are divorced. God hates divorce. Okay? And the children, unfortunately, suffer the consequence of a parent's divorce situation. Children suffer the consequence of faithlessness in a family. If a Christian family, if the father's lukewarm, many times the children will be lukewarm. If the parents are apathetic to the things of God, if they're apathetic to the gathering of God's people, many times the children will be apathetic to the gathering of God's people. If the parents get in their car and drive home and complain about the church and the kids are in the back seat hearing it all, it affects them negatively. It's the consequence of the sins of the parents that oftentimes show up in the children. So here he's talking about the consequence, not some curse. Amen? Are we good on that? Okay. Next. Now, the emphasis 
of what Moses experienced here is placed on the double-stated name of God and the words he speaks, showing us that the nature and actions of God are inseparable from his name. He is the word. He is Yahweh. He is the God who saves. Notice the words of verse 7. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and full and faithfulness. Those words echo throughout Scripture. The words spoken here echo throughout the prophets, the priests, and the kings of God's people. You know, it even shows up negatively. Remember when we looked at the, the ministry of uh, Jonah a few weeks ago? Okay, uh, Jonah is called by God to go preach to Nineveh. Go preach, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He hears this and he goes 180 degrees out from where God told him to go. He gets on a ship, he goes to sea, I'm getting out of here, away from here. God says, no, you're not. Here's a storm, I'm going to stir up a storm. I'm going to trip out the crew and they're going to throw you overboard. I've prepared a fish to swallow you and I'm going to prepare that fish to throw you up on the shore and you're going to go preach. Right? God's will will be done. Yes, that's right. It's a fish, not a whale. It's from a three-year-old. Prepared fish. I said that a few weeks ago. It's not a whale. Okay, Jonah goes in and Nineveh repents. What did Jonah say? Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And you called me to this country. I hate these people. It's inferred. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Lord, just take me out. Kill me. Right? Yeah, it's great if God is merciful and long-suffering for me, but not for the people I hate, said Jonah. It says many of us. So confirmation of God's disposition is revealed to Moses by God's name and his word. He wasn't trying to experience something for his soul to see the glory of God. This is, he, he's mediating for the people. He wants to see God's disposition. He wants this promise confirmed. Now, there's, there's, of course, a parallel to this in the New Testament where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And the context there is his impending departure. That is Jesus' impending departure by way of the cross. Philip speaks up. Lord, John 14, 8, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You know, before Jesus came out of heaven, he dwelt in the unmediated presence of his Father, and he would ascend back to his Father, unmediated, 
because Jesus stands and endures and is the only one who can endure the full presence of God's glory. Even in his human personhood, he has all the fullness of deity dwelling where? In him. Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And we read, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He did not say, look at him. He said, listen to him. Listen, hear him. Peter, one of the only three who experienced that when he was reflecting on the transfiguration, experience, as he calls it, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he writes this. And we have something more sure. More sure than what? The experience. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So he says, pay attention to the prophetic words spoken by Christ and his servants who follow. You want to experience something? Experience the word of God. For the word sanctifies. Father, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. It's not about majestic visions. Now, we read the same truth in Exodus that we read about in the New Testament. Emphasize, the emphasis rather being the word and the name, not sight. Word and name, not sight. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Faith does not come by seeing in this fallen, corrupt world, beloved. God's means of grace is the proclamation of his word. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, I am that I am, Jesus Christ, I am that I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the theophany confirms God's promise and assures Moses But it's God's word, you see, this word that reverberates throughout the scriptures, the entire Bible, that we do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. You know what Paul wrote? Through the working of the Holy Spirit, God said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He said, let there be, and there was has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what you've been given. Have you seen him? Have you seen Jesus as he stood in your bedroom? No, don't tell me he has. Okay? Don't tell me he has. But you, by way of the Holy Spirit, by the working of God, has shown us Christ, the Word, by the proclamation of His Word. I am that I am. And you believe. This is the name above every name. 
You know, the means of God being slow to anger, we've been reading about he is slow to anger. Commentators agree. That's a picture of God having very long nostrils. And he just breathes in because he was angry with Israel. And because he's just. And Jesus is a means, the means, I should say, of God being slow to anger. All four? What's the key phrase of the day? His name's sake, which is for his glory. Okay? Okay, look at this. Isaiah 48. I'm going to ask Cliff if you'd leave that up there. Okay? Now look at this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake. Double statement. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Now, many of you grew up in churches... Maybe you were part of a youth group or whatever, or even families where God's love and zeal for us, that is God's commitment to us, is taught as being paramount, paramount, a paramount characteristic of God, right? Above everything else, the characteristic of God is that he loves you. But if you read this text, what's paramount here, among many other texts, is the principal theme describes God celebrating himself. Now, don't miss this. Notice he celebrates his name, verse 9. For the sake of my name. For the sake of his praise, verse 9. For his being, verse 11, for my own sake. And for his glory, verse 11. Not us. It's not for us. So how then does this text relate to Old Covenant Israel and, of course, to us to this day? Well, notice... I defer my anger. I restrain it for you. Okay? That I may not cut you off. I have refined you. I am refining you. I have tried you. And I do it, that is, refine you. I defer. I restrain. I, refri- I, 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 I try you through fire as acts of love for you for the sake of my name sake of my name. So the foundation of his love and commitment for us is a commitment to himself. For you see, we are one with him, redeemed. It is for his namesake, verse 9, that he defers his anger. He restrains it for the sake of his praise. So again, our forgiveness in his name are inseparably woven together throughout time. Isn't it beautiful? Glory. Come on, somebody. Speak. So the foundational reason that God is committed to his people, it's not us. It is for his namesake. He defers that anger. He restrains it so as to refine us. And in refining us, he removes dross. When you heat up gold or silver, the dross comes to the top and you scrape it off and you have refined gold, refined silver. And what is he refining from us? The ultimate sin? 
the profaning of his name. Notice. It's not living for the glory of the creator. We diminish his name. We reduce his name for our own glory. And he says right there, I will not share my glory with anyone. Amen? We profane his name because we're glory stealers in and of ourselves. We're self-worshippers in and of ourselves, but by the grace of God. So we're irreverent, we're blasphemous, disrespectful, idolatrous, glory stealers, not unlike Israel. That anger, that anger that deserves the people who deserve wrath is restrained. But eventually, it would be fully meted out, fully expressed. How? Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Peace. Who's he talking about? The Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus. I talked to a Jewish person yesterday who believes that the Messiah has not yet come. I said, then you have no hope. You have no hope. You're stuck in the first Adam. You can only be delivered by the second Adam. Jesus. I didn't say it with that kind of force, but it was on my property in front of my house, so. It's Jesus Christ, Romans 3.25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is the satisfaction, the crushing of the son. He is the propitiation, which means satisfaction. God's anger is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied by what? His blood to be received how? By faith. You can't work your way in. The gentleman I spoke with yesterday, he's trying to earn favor in the sight of God by doing good deeds. You can't do it. You'll die under the law. You'll die. The law kills. Christ upheld the law. It's by faith. He alone vindicates the name, the name above all names. He alone vindicates the praise and the glory due to the name. He is the righteousness of God. Back to Moses. Now Moses my appointed mediator, Moses, Moses, Moses. Do you see my disposition, Moses? Do you see my identity with these, my people? I am the Lord, merciful, long-suffering. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Do they deserve it? Do you deserve it? No, you don't. And I certainly don't. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Verse 6, the Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice, God uses three words to cover betrayal, rebellion, and all points in between. Israel's already guilty of this. 
You and I are guilty of this. How does Moses respond? There's only one way. Verse uh, 8, 34. Chapter 34, verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth. And what did he do? He worshipped. You go down. You go down. And then he pleads, verse 9. If now, okay, now, remember, he, he, he's pleading before God. God said, I'm not going with you. Okay, f- well, f- let's go back. First, God says, Moses, this is when Moses is up in town. They're down there worshiping a calf. I'm going to destroy them all. You better get on down there. I'm going to kill them. Moses goes down. He sees it. He, he shares righteous indignation of God, throws the tablets down. God kills 3,000 and shows mercy to the rest. And then he says, you know, Moses says, I'm going to plead on your behalf, and perhaps, just perhaps, God will allow me to make atonement. I'm going to go back up to him. And the Lord said, no, I don't accept your atonement. He said, look, Moses, you're going to lead your people, no longer referring to them as his people. You're going to lead your people into the promised land, like I said. I'll pay the rent. I'll get you there. I'll even send an angel ahead of you to beat up all the bullies. But I am not going with you. So he pleads again, and he uses the interchanging of pronouns. Lord, you said I'm your friend. You said you love me, but what about us, right? Deliver us. For the mediators identifying with the people, deliver us. Come with us. And we know God never relents. He never changes his mind. The doctrine of the immutability of God, but again with anthropomorphic language, God speaks in a way that condescends to us to let us see that, that, that God here is having a change of mind when he's really not having a change of mind. The reality is he's conforming his mediator to his own image on behalf of the people. And he goes, okay, I'm going to go with you. And that is when he mediates and says, okay, I want to see your disposition because you already said you're going to destroy him, so show me your glory so I, you can confirm this to me. And this is the result. Now he pleads, verse 9, if now I have found favor in your sight, oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Please come with us. For it is a stiff-necked people. Notice, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Do you notice something there? Moses asked pardon for our iniquity, our sin. Moses had nothing to do with worshiping the calf. He was with the Lord on the mountain. He had nothing to do with this. He had no part in this idolatry, no part in this iniquity. So again, we see the mediator appointed here by God designated by God who so identifies himself with the people that their sins are taken upon him, our sin. And who does that remind you of? The one who never sinned, Jesus. Moses sinned. Jesus never sinned. That's why it was only him who could make atonement. This foreshadows that. So this is a very serious sin. This is a heinous iniquity. This is idolatrous, adulterous sins, sins of which everyone in this room are guilty in some sense. Period. Anyone who thinks they're not, please stand. Serious. Romans 3.25. Because of his divine forbearance, 
He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only way we can reconcile God's justice and his grace, okay? He's just, and Israel rightfully deserved to be destroyed. And so do we. But yet his grace. God relented, abounding in steadfast mercy. The only way that God's justice and his grace can be reconciled is to see how it is worked out on the cross. It's the cross. Jesus died to make atonement for our sin, for he is the only mediator between God and man. The only one. Moses' mediation foreshadowed the true mediator, Jesus. So, Scripture tells us that God is both just and the one who what? Justifies. Right there in Romans 3.26. He's just and he justifies all those who have faith in Jesus because he cannot deny himself. Therefore, he's committed to all those who trusted him because the just punishment of God in his angry wrath was settled as he poured it out upon Jesus, his son, on the cross, which justifies you who believe. Just and the justifier. So again, little children, says John, little children, Jesus, who is a greater mediator than Moses, assures you, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. His namesake. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Confess your sin. Repent, which means turn to him, and you'll be saved by him, from him. That is, you'll be saved from his wrath, by his grace, for his namesake. He's your only hope. It's the glory of his name. The name above all names.